where this morning we come to one of the most magnificent parts of Scripture. It's a beautiful song of praise that wells up in Paul's heart and is expressed in his pen as he considers how we might love one another, as he has considered the joy that he has in the Lord. He bursts forth in praise, glorying in the majesty of Jesus. And he does so as he considers his own actions, our own actions. He has us pause simply to marvel at Jesus and to draw from his example, to be inspired by his humility. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you would know that we're looking at the book of Philippians through the lens of joy. The joy that is established deep within the Christian soul, the result of knowing Christ and being indwelt by his spirit. And you would know that we have landed now at this passage in Philippians 2 by considering joy in all circumstance, in isolation, in suffering, and even in death or in the absence of death, how we might find joy in the Christian life. And as Paul writes, as we read Philippians, I trust that you can feel that joy. It's a tangible experience as we read the words inspired by God's own spirit. It wells up in Paul. It grows as he reflects on his own circumstance, as he considers and declares afresh God's sovereignty and as he expresses his love for the church. You can see the joy. You can feel the joy and hear that joy bursts out into a song of praise, looking at the goodness of Christ, since he is that root of joy in the Christian life. But I want you to see, friends, that this song doesn't just come out spontaneously. It comes as Paul considers and ponders and instructs on the Christian life. So intertwined in Paul's teaching is the Christian life, the joy of the gospel and the praise of Christ, that they cannot be separated or distinguished. They run together like cords in the same strand of rope. So let's follow his train of thought and see how this cord holds together. If you were here last week, we explored that thinking of joy in life and death. And Paul recognized that in either of those events, whichever were to come to pass, he would be glorifying Christ and that Paul himself would be joyful. And knowing that, he shifted his instruction away from his own life toward the church at Philippi. And he encouraged them and therefore us as Christian brothers and sisters to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, to live as citizens of the gospel, to citizenize. You may recall that word that's not really a word. And to do this, says Paul, in our passage today, it will require gospel thinking. If you are to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus, you will need to Think with a gospel mind. 
He writes, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. If you're going to move forward in life as gospel citizens, says Paul, you need to think gospel thoughts. You need to be of one mind, one gospel mind. And to get our minds thinking in that way, he says, look at Christ and what you already have because of him. He uses an if-then statement, which I'll unpack in a moment. But essentially, he says, if you have Christ, then live for Christ. And he does it more or less by asking five rhetorical questions. They're not written as questions in our text, but they are designed to make us question ourselves. He says, do you have any encouragement from being found in Christ? Do you have any comfort in your life from being found in Christ's love? Do you share in his spirit, which he freely gives to his people? Do you experience the tenderness, the affection that comes from Christ? Have you experienced compassion in your life, the result of depending on Christ? And the answer for any Christian, whether you were one in Philippi 2,000 years ago or whether you're one sitting here today, the answer should be yes, 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 yes. A thousand times yes to all of those questions, Paul. I have experienced encouragement from Christ. I'm comforted by his love. I share in his spirit. I know his affection. And I know the compassion and forgiveness that he affords to me. Yes. Then, says Paul, be of one mind. Share in one love. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's building up momentum in his argument so that when he offers what will be a hard teaching, it's reinforced by that which has come before. I do the same thing with my kids on a much smaller scale when it comes to, say, eating dinner. Like most kids, mine are reasonably picky, and so you can offer the same line of argument. Did I go out and get the food for you? Did I prepare it? Yes. Did I cook it? Yes. Did I serve it? Yes. Then is it too much trouble for you to eat it? The answer should be no. You can see the argument. Christ has done this and this and this and this. Therefore, is it too hard for you? The answer should be no. And Paul says on the back of this building momentum, make joy complete. By living these gospel-centered lives. Make my joy complete, he says, by being like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Paul, in his 
line of thinking in his argument here has said, since you answered yes to all the benefits that Christ has given you, you should, as his people, be of one accord. You should have agreement in Christ. You should be of one love. There should be love the result of Christ's own love. You must be of one spirit, Christ's spirit. And you are to be of one mind. Christ's mind. You are to be united as gospel people, says Paul. And as you do this, joy will increase and overflow. This unity in the gospel comes not from total agreement on every decision or total agreement on every doctrine. No, this unity in the gospel stems from the shared experience of goodness in Jesus. We have all shared in those benefits as his people. And so we can live as one, unified under Christ. And that will be demonstrated most clearly, says Paul, in our approach to one another. There in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Complete joy, says Paul. Gospel thinking. Gospel living. is found in true humility. Complete my joy, says Paul, by being humble before one another. What Paul is saying here at the beginning of Philippians 2 is that the reaction to being a recipient of Christ's benefits is to live in this life humbly, to value our Christian brothers and sisters whom Christ died for above ourselves. To increase our collective joy by displaying this humility in our lives. Friends, last week we considered joy in death. And as sad as it may be, I'd wager that some of us would more willingly embrace death than we would embrace humility. Humility is hard. It's costly. It denies ourself and our desires. And unlike death, it does not come naturally to us all. Those of us corrupted by sin, which is all of us, struggle with pride and selfishness and our own worldly desires. And humility stands against all of that. Humility, as Paul describes it here, is understood as putting another's needs or interests ahead of our our own. Denying our interests, our desires, our wants for the sake of others. And Paul says as we do this, it is a witness to the gospel. And a powerful witness it is. Friends, humility is 
forgiveness when everything in you screams for revenge. Humility is compassion when we're feeling selfish. It's using a gentle word rather than a harshly spoken truth. It can be the giving of time, of energies, of money to help a brother or sister. And true humility brings glory to God and joy to the believer. Paul has already given us an example from his own life just in the previous chapter. He has said that he will go on living for the Philippians' sake. Back in chapter 1 in verse 21, weighing up those life or death options, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, it will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul's interest is death. And as odd as that may sound, we considered why last week, so I won't rehash it now. But Paul's desire for himself is to die and be with Christ, to realize fully the glory of Jesus. Verse 24, chapter 1. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Paul would willingly delay his ultimate union with Christ, foregoing the joy that death would bring for the sake of the Philippians. He would deny himself the fullest realization of Christ, whom he praises greatly in this passage. He would delay that so that he can help the Philippians. So that he can raise them up and inspire them. Friends, that is true humility. Forgoing his deepest desire, his greatest interest for the sake of the Philippian brothers and sisters. Does that not radiate joy in their life? Does that not enhance the gospel witness as Paul preaches and teaches? That he himself would model exactly what he is declaring the appropriate course of Christian action. Friends, I trust that we are not in that exact circumstance having to forego coming face to face with Christ so that we might benefit one another. But day by day and week by week, we are all afforded opportunities to display humility. Opportunities to value our brothers and sisters above ourselves. To not look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. As I was reflecting this week on examples of this, I think that the most obvious opportunity that faces all of us at the moment would be the demonstration of humility within vaccination discussions. 
no secret that our society has a great tension arising within it between those who are double-vaxxed and those who are not. Now, I know that there are many here who would find themselves somewhat neutral in that discussion, but you would be aware of it nonetheless. But outside the walls of the church, there is a growing stress and tension. That at the ends of this spectrum, there are those who are opposed to vaccination for a variety of reasons. Some concerned about the health implications, about government coercion. Some concerned about the ethics of the vaccine. At the other end are those in favor of vaccination, convinced that all should partake in it. And they remain concerned about their own health and infection rates, and particularly about interaction with those who are unvaccinated. And I know that even within churches, this is a divisive issue, and NBC is no exception. So what would humility look like in this situation? What would it mean if each of us, no matter where we sat on that spectrum, put the interests of others ahead of our own? Well, for those opposed to vaccination, it may mean recognizing that some are genuinely concerned about COVID, that they are being cautious, and it would seek to love them in that caution, not by denying our own convictions, but rather by being considerate in our actions, maintaining the health regulations where possible. Not because we're told to do so, but as a demonstration of love and concern and care for our brothers and sisters. Recognizing that, that they're concerned and acting accordingly in love. For those concerned about the unvaccinated, those at the other end of that spectrum, it would mean recognizing that our unvaccinated brothers and sisters have genuine conviction of their position. It would mean realizing that they are suffering harsher restrictions at this time and seeking to be loving and accommodating where possible. It might mean continuing in Zoom meetings so as not to exclude these brothers and sisters. It might mean utilizing this church facility as a place of meeting where the law allows us to do so. Despite our firmly held convictions at either end of this disputable matter, on both sides of the issue, if we act with humility, there would certainly be a lot less criticism and a lot less shot-taking at one another. A lot more compassion and love and a great opportunity to witness to the goodness of God, to show that the church is not like the world. These are small things on either side, and I'm sure if we pondered it more deeply, we could realize even more opportunities. But these small things would be steps toward humility, and it would stand out against our society. It would provide us with even more opportunity to declare the gospel to those bewildered by our humble reaction. But how would we achieve such humility? Whether it be in the sphere of vaccination, whether it be in a personal conflict that you have with a brother or sister, or be it in life in general, how do we become more humble? Well, Paul directs us 
to the greatest example of humility in a bid to convince us and to teach us how to act. He says in this space, brothers and sisters, consider Christ. In your relationships with one another, in your humble love and service of one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. This is the one-mindedness that Paul talked about earlier. Be of one mind. And that mindset is that of Christ Jesus. This is the way of thinking, says Paul, that leads to humility. And then he gives us the example of Jesus. We're in verse 6 of Philippians 2. He says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. On a cross. Friends, if anyone had the right to act as a superior, if anyone had the authority to be proud and actually live by that pride, it's Jesus. Because he is God. He is superior to all else. He is perfect and sinless and flawless. And if he were to act as such, We could not hold it against him. And yet, says Paul, look at what Jesus did. He didn't hold on to his position. He didn't act higher and more mighty than you and I, even though he is. He didn't remain seated on his throne, though he would have been right to do so. No, He took on lowliness, says Paul. For our sake, for our best interests. Now, yes, it's true, he doesn't cease to be God. But he takes on flesh. He looks to our interests and acts accordingly. Becoming one of us. Living the life that you and I could not live. Being found perfect in human form. And then in the ultimate display of both humbleness and humiliation, he dies on the cross, fulfilling our greatest need. He foregoes his own interests to love us, to save us, to do what we could not. Truly, he acts humbly in the sense that Paul describes it, putting first our interests and not his own. Not because it was deserved, not because we are somehow worthy of such love, but because he is good and loving and gracious and chose to act in humility. Be like that, says Paul. You want to know how you can be humble with your brothers and sisters, even if they frustrate you? You want to know how you can act 
humbly with one another, even if we disagree. Look at Jesus. That one thing that we all share in common. Look at Jesus and what he has done for you and for your brothers and sisters. And then act like he has. Don't grasp on to your position, your knowledge, your power, your wealth, whatever it may be that you have that you think could elevate you above another. Forgo it for the sake of your brothers and sisters, just as Christ did so for you. And as he reflects on what Christ has done for himself, for Philippi, for we here at NBC and Christians all around this globe, He bursts forth in this praise, in his response. And in God's response, verse 9, Therefore, considering this humble Christ, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul's encouragement to the Philippians and to us is to look at this glorious, resurrected Christ seated on the throne, the one before whom all will bow, all will confess as Lord. Look at him and what he has done for you. Behold his demonstrated, established, eternal glory. And then live as he lived, humbly, graciously, not clinging to status, but elevating others. Brothers and sisters, when we look to Christ as our example, when we in our lives mimic his actions, when we live humbly with one another, when we elevate each other's interests above our own, That is when we live out the gospel with one mind, says Paul. That is when joy increases and when Christ is truly glorified. Brothers and sisters, it is my prayer, and I hope that it is your prayer, that we would want to live like that. And that by God's grace, he might enable us to live like that. Would you pray with me that that would be the case? Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as we consider Christ, as we consider that he stepped out of the heavenly realms and took on flesh, that in his flesh he bore our sin and shame, that he went to the cross for our sake, we have a true example of humility. And Lord, as the recipient of all those good things that we have considered this morning, all manifest in our life because of what Christ has done, how can we not be motivated to be more humble? And yet, Lord, we know that in our lives, humility is not something that comes naturally. We all too often look to our own interests exclusively, or at least primarily. Help us, Lord, as we continue to gaze on the majesty of Christ to realize that 
Humility is a true reflection of what he has done for us. In all circumstances, Lord, be it personal disputes, disagreements over issues like vaccinations, be it long-standing tensions or newly developed angst, we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to love one another, to act humbly, with one another. That out of that might arise a wondrous joy in our church and numerous opportunities to preach the gospel as we stand out as different in this world. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for what he has done. We pray now that we truly would live gospel lives united in the mind of Christ. We pray it for his sake and in his name. Amen.